Up next on Book TV's Afterwards, University of Virginia history professor Sarah Mylove discusses the political history of tobacco in America. She's interviewed by former FDA Commissioner David Kessler. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. Congratulations. Thank you. Your book is a major accomplishment. It is a significant scholarly work. Uh, I think it's fair to say uh, you move the field. Oh, well, that's a tremendous uh, thing to hear coming from you, David. Thank you so much. How does it feel? Um, like a big relief, you know. It's been 10 years in the works to make this book, and so um, it feels like a relief, and it's, it's just a pleasure to be able to talk about it, talk about it with you and tons of other uh, interesting people. Three major writers spent their careers um, studying, uh, writing about tobacco and uh, the cigarette. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Kluger uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, for Ashes to Ashes. Amazing book. Cinematic, like really a page turner. Uh, Alan Brandt, the great uh, medical scientific uh, historian on the cigarette century. Mm -hmm. And Robert Proctor at Stanford about the deception of yeah. the uh, uh, industry. Any trepidation uh, when you started? I mean, you had three literally giant books. They are uh, giant, out, yes. Out there, um, and you uh, you took a risk. Yes, but, you know, I really feel as though with those three books, Ashes to Ashes, Cigarette Century, and uh, Robert Proctor's, you know, whole corpus of works, the, the biggest of which is called Golden Holocaust, um, I really feel as though I was standing on the, the shoulders of giants. These are fantastic works, and... My work is tremendously indebted to them, but, um, you know, when I was thinking about writing about tobacco, I wasn't approaching it the same way that they were. They were very much coming at the story of tobacco from the angle of industry. And um, when I began this project in a much more humble state, you know, just as a lowly graduate student, I really began it from thinking about agriculture and farmers, which... Um, uh, it's probably not surprising to say there aren't three humongous tomes about tobacco agriculture. And so I actually saw these big works as, as a you know, reason for my little you know, opening wedge into the field to write about it in a different way. And then, of course, um, the, the book and the project uh, changed quite a bit in the past 10 years when I, from when I began this, you know, low these many <laughs> years ago. Let's just start with a basic question. How does... Uh, Professor Sarah Milov, how do you view the cigarette? Well, I think re returning back to those uh, three works that you mentioned, and I, you know, returning to how we think about uh, the cigarette in uh, popular culture and political life, we very much tend to associate the product, rightly so, with the deception of the the major tobacco firms. Now. Uh, the, it has a, a cinematic quality to it. The uh, executives of tobacco firms met in the Plaza Hotel in a chilly December night in 1953, and they, they hatched a plan to basically engage in what became a half-century-long conspiracy to manufacture doubt as a way to evade regulation. Uh, this is a tremendously important story and one that I think has been, you know, is continuing to be fruitfully mined to apply to other corp, uh, strategies of corporate deception. But if you take a, a wider angled view, what begins to come in focus is what the, the presence of the cigarette in American life was not simply uh, produced by the industry itself. If you begin um, with from, from seed to smoke, you see that the government, the federal government specifically, has had a really big hand in abetting um, the cigarette century, to use Alan Brandt's phrase. And what undermined uh, the presence of the cigarette in American life was not the fact that 
you know, the feds finally got hip in 1964 or the, the 1990s. It was the assiduous efforts of activists um, in the 60s and 70s to really dislodge uh, the hold of tobacco uh, in American life, and they couldn't do it by operating uh, at the federal level. They had to look to local and state governments to do so. So if you think about the cigarette, uh, over the span of the 20th century, you see a product that was, and a, and a behavior pattern, a culture, a way of life that was made by federal action and that was unmade by a social movement um, that basically created a new character in America, the character of the non-smoker. We're going to spend a lot of time talking, uh, unpacking uh, that. Um, let's just start. Um, how does Professor Milov, how do you do history? How do you do history? Oh, I love this question. Well, I think, you know, what you're trained to do in graduate school is read as much as possible that's been written and try to, you know, the first couple years of graduate school are to kind of poke holes in every book that you read and think about what's missing or what kind of uh, analysis do they put forward, but what does that kind of uh, paper over and hide? Uh, where And the, the whole point of asking these questions and being so hard on these important, fabulous tomes um, is so that the graduate student basically figures out what their own voice can be, what their own contribution to novel research can be. And so um, when I was reading in graduate school, I actually wasn't steeped in the tobacco debates at all. I was very interested in an entirely different question about the persistence of regionalism and regional economies and regional difference. And so at the beginning of my time um, in graduate school, there was a lively debate amongst um, historians of the South and historians of conservatism over the question, is the South still a unique region? This was, you know, the 2000 and aughts. You know. So did it make sense to focus on the South as a region that was different from, say, the Sun Belt? Because a lot of historians looked at political life out in the suburbs of Atlanta, in the suburbs of Charlotte, in the suburbs of Phoenix and, and Los Angeles. And they said, you know, the, the patterns, the political patterns that are happening here look the same. And so maybe the South isn't really the central um, point of polit you know, regional distinctiveness is not uh, what's really operative anymore. And so in my reading and in my quest for novelty, uh, I was interested in the persistence of Southern agriculture and the persistence of an agricultural economy, even in a region that began to look over the, the, the in the post-war period, even in a region that began to look more like other parts of the United States. Um, so I was kind of pushing back against this idea that the South was, you know, just like the rest of the United States by saying, well, if you focus on this way that many that money is made in the South, the political economy of the South, well, you might actually start to see um, a continuity uh, in between, you know, regional distinction in the 19th and early 20th century in, you know, to the late 20th century. Uh, I saw there was a fellowship you had around 2010. Mm -hmm. I guess it was the Virginia Historical mm. um, Society. Um, you were at the University of Virginia, um, uh, the cigarette. Um, uh, you're not from uh, the South. Uh, um, uh, you actually, you, I mean, um, You've lived, what, Florida, um, uh, Massachusetts. Yes. Is there something geographically um, uh, about, the, about Virginia, about um, uh, the land, um, the cigarette? Uh, yeah, so, you know, just going back deep into my own uh, reading and my own history, I thought that some of the literature on um, Southern distinctiveness maybe gave a bit of short shrift to 
the persistence of uh, basically agricultural myths that the presence of undeveloped land in the South or what appeared to be undeveloped land in the South um, had a, a cultural hold on people. Uh, and land is also you know, an important uh, feature of Southern agricultural economy. And so it was very much um, a quest to understand the meaning of land in uh, a post-World War II South that gave rise to this project because I was thinking, you know, what are the two um, crops that are most associated, that are most grown in the South? Of course, there's cotton and there's tobacco. And um, it seemed to me that tobacco was a much more interesting uh, uh, commodity to focus on in the 20th century. If my historical research is right, I mean, the, I can trace this your interest back to a McDonald's, um, <laughs> you're uh, in North Carolina, you're waiting um, for a Billy Jurgen. Um, yes. Is, uh, take me back yes. to the early interest. Yes, so um, it's so funny that you mention uh, that. So when I was beginning this project, you know, I had no, I had decided I'm going to try to understand how tobacco farmers related to big tobacco. That was my original question. And to do that, I knew I'd need to look um, in archives across North Carolina. And I selected North Carolina as kind of this case study because North Carolina was and is uh, the leading producer of a particular kind of tobacco called flu-cured tobacco um, that is a primary constituent in uh, an American-style cigarette. And so I knew I'd need to set up camp, uh, and do research at UNC, at Duke, at North Carolina State, um, at East Carolina University in Greenville and the Coastal Plain. Um, but it would be very helpful, and I would recommend this to any uh, young historian who's thinking about beginning a, a book, a dissertation or a book project, to find a local source that's a bit, a bit of a history buff. And this gentleman had been involved with the tobacco economy. Um, he had worked uh, for tobacco, uh, basically a state-level tobacco lobby. And he had produced a self-published book. And people who produce self-published books are usually very happy to talk to you about their research. So I just emailed him out of the blue and said, you know, I'm a graduate student. I'd love to talk to you about your work in tobacco. And he was more than happy to meet with me, and he gave me a lot of information I otherwise wouldn't have known and wouldn't have known where to look had it not been uh, for meeting him. Yes. So the interest was in agriculture. Mm -hmm. It was in the South. Mm -hmm. It was in tobacco. What? Where did it start? I, um, you know, I, I can't trace it back um, to your undergraduate days, where, where, the, where, did be, where did the idea come from? Your parents are docs, right? Yes. Um, yeah. This did not come from smoking, I can say that. Um, in, in fact, you know, the, the, the beginning of the book, I mean, is really about tobacco before you really get into the cigarette. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that? Absolutely, So yeah. it wasn't the cigarette, it wasn't the health. Right. Um, it was... Were you always a political historian? Was it the... Uh... Yeah, I was really interested in... So, um, in the early... In the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a tremendous tension between the big tobacco of the era, which was then known as the Tobacco Trust. And the Tobacco Trust was um, uh, the... Uh, the monopoly controlled by James B. Duke of Duke University fame. And what Duke did uh, beginning in the 1890s was he basically bought up every type of tobacco concern around. He consolidated hundreds of smaller tobacco companies into one big company called the American Tobacco Company. Um, and uh, because the American Tobacco Company had essentially monopoly power, 
it meant that American tobacco could dictate prices uh, that it would pay to tobacco farmers for what they grew. And so there was, there was tension, there was violence, there was anger on the part of tobacco farmers toward this big monopoly. Give me a sense of, you know, the tobacco farmer. Who was the tobacco farmer? Mm -hmm. So tobacco farmers um, in the, well, for the late 19th and and early part of the 20th century uh, tended to be uh, small. They they grew on a small scale, and in part that was due to the the fact of the crop's tremendous labor requirements. The crop was colloquially known as the 13-month crop because planning for the subsequent season had to begin even before uh, the uh, current season was harvested. It relied on, uh, uh, there are different stratums within tobacco farming. So you had landowners who may work the farms themselves with family labor, or they may have uh, hired tenants or sharecroppers. And there's a racial dimension to this. Tenant farmers were more frequently white. Sharecroppers were more frequently African-American. And the difference between those two was that sharecroppers you know, sometimes never saw cash in the course of what they did. Uh, they had to buy from uh, the store where their debts were, um, you know, tallied uh, against what they brought in from the previous season. So it was a perpetual cycle of indebtedness. Um, and so even for the top of this, uh, of this class system amongst tobacco farmers, they were always so much weaker relative to, of course, something like the Duke Tobacco Trust. So y- you see even amongst um, elite farmers uh, anger at uh, b- the big tobacco of its day. And so what motivated me toward uh, thinking about tobacco through the latter part of the 20th century was my question was essentially, what happened to all of that antagonism within the industry once tobacco and cigarettes begin to be threatened uh, uh, from the health perspective? Did did that outside threat foment an alliance uh, between uh, farmers and industry where before there had been antagonism? And so that was kind of the quest that I was on. And and this movement from this angry opposition to Mm -hmm. a business-like alliance, did it occur? To a a large extent, it did occur, but it did not occur um, because tobacco farmers thought that the the cigarette uh, manufacturers were their friends. So what happened that changed everything in American agriculture, in Southern agriculture especially, but in American agriculture writ large, was the Great Depression, but more importantly, the New Deal. And the New Deal was tremendously consequential for tobacco because it instituted a very rigid um, and very controlled system of regulations on the land. Um, So when you think, oh, tobacco is just this unregulated crop, in fact, more than any other crop grown in the United States, tobacco farmers had to abide by very strict production controls. And in fact, tobacco was written uh, tobacco farm laws were not written with main, the main part of the farm bill. They were always written separately with their own legislation. So what the New Deal did was basically institute um, a system of, think of it as supply management, that we're going to make sure that uh, Mr. Tobacco Farmer, who, uh, by the way, you cannot just declare yourself a tobacco farmer, you essentially have to have a license to grow. An allotment. An allotment, exactly. Uh, That Mr. Tobacco Farmer cannot produce more than X amount, and this is uh, going to be revised based on yearly projections for what the manufacturers need. But in exchange, we'll provide Mr. Tobacco Farmer with a minimum price for the tobacco. It's kind of akin to a minimum wage in industry, and it was passed at right around the same time. So what this did was it basically enabled 
the agricultural sector uh, to be kind of buffered from what you can almost think of as the bullying of the tobacco industry. True for wheat and corn and tobacco or differences? Uh, the major difference with tobacco is that the program of supply management was much more rigid. That um, uh, the there was not buffers within the, the um, agricultural law to allow people to go way over one year and then underplant the next year. You simply were not allowed to market over your allotment. You talk about uh, the, the phrase iron triangle. Mm. What is that? Well, an iron triangle is, um, is an old political science term that basically refers to an alliance between or, or a, a, a dynamic between a, a subcommittee in Congress that oversees um, uh, a regulatory agency and private industry. So, uh, say, the tobacco subcommittee, uh, the USDA, and tobacco, uh, tobacco farmers, organized tobacco farmers. And the most important tobacco farm organization um, for the cigarette, uh, for much of the story I tell, is the North Carolina Farm Bureau. And so give me a sense of this Iron Triangle, the 50s um, mm. or so, What's the dynamics there? So the basic story with um, what's going on in terms of tobacco farming after, say, World War II is that tobacco farmers are very empowered by Congress and encouraged by the USDA to basically write their own laws. So what do I mean by this? Well, after war... Uh, any producing group is anxious about readjusting production to peacetime. You know, you're not going to have the same kind of revved-up industry uh, that, you're, that you would have during war. And there's a special reason to think about that with cigarettes because, of course, the uh, armed services were such important purveyors of cigarettes. So after the First World War, farmers were not organized. They had not been corralled uh, by the New Deal. And they experienced a really severe depression, and all farmers did, in agriculture for a lot of the 1920s. And so during the, the Second World War, tobacco farmers, who have now become more organized by their interaction with the federal government, and the federal government is literally organizing uh, groups of farmers into committees so that they kind of plan uh, how much tobacco they'll produce in subsequent years. So these uh, elite tobacco farmers are coming together in uh, various places across North Carolina, and they're saying, you know, what are we going to do about the post-war readjustment? We can't let what happened after the First World War happen again after the Second World War. And so what do tobacco farmers have now that they didn't have after World War One, what they have now is proximity to government, proximity to the levers of power. They have a whole bureaucracy. These are the farmers and their proximity yes, to they government. Yes, ha they have a whole bureaucracy that's interested in their well-being in a way that they had not been uh, before. Because of votes? Because of money? Um, because, you know, the New Deal did, well, I'd say for two reasons. One, the New Deal did, you know, inaugurate an, a a way of doing government that gave power and benefits to privileged groups. And in this case, it was producers, tobacco farmers. And you can see this to a, a lesser extent, perhaps a less successful extent, but also to organized labor. There was a theory of how the economy should work, that if you could get um, producers to essentially form organizations to get their house in order, you could have more smooth functioning of the economy Overall, But the second reason that tobacco becomes so in strangely important had to do with the power, really, of Southern Democrats, right? Like, who's important in the New Deal coalition? Who's the glue that holds these disparate, you know, you know northeastern farm groups uh, or northeastern uh, industry groups together with, uh, with Southern farmers? It's, it's uh, Southern Democrats. And so... 
um, they've kind of wheeled outsized power uh, in terms of of the Democratic Party. Now, it's the farmers who had the power, or it was it the, the, the corporations, the tobacco corporations? You know, tobacco corporations have power this whole time, right? What is new is the interest of the federal government in shoring up uh, farmers as well, in kind of in in producing policy that ensures that farmers have uh, a standard of of living that they had not been assured before. So who's driving who? You talk about the federal government having interest. Is that because the companies had interest? Is that mm -hmm. because the tobacco farmers had power and mm -hmm. they stimulated the interest right. uh, of the government? Well, I think there's um, like a political calculation uh, on the part of Southern Democrats that, you know, they've got these constituents that are important. You know, they have many more constituents that are farmers than they had constituents that were tobacco executives. So this is about votes? In part, it's about votes, but in part, it's about um, kind of an economic theory about how to empower different groups in, uh, in the modern economy. That if you had an imbalance between the agricultural sector and the industrial sector and the consumer sector, then that might lead to uh, another depression. And so it was important for the federal government to basically shore up these different groups of Americans and make sure that there was economic harmony. Let me, uh, let me give a simplistic, a simplistic assertion mm. that tobacco really was never good um, for the farmers. It was good for the big corporations. Well, that's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that with what I know about the experience of tobacco farming in the 20th century. So because of federal policy that was directing money toward farmers, farming became a lot better. Was it um, perhaps... Uh, Many people at the same time, to your point, left the farm when they could, but the experience of farming post-1930s was much better than it had been pre-1930s. And tobacco farmers did, relative to corporations, relative to big tobacco, they captured a larger share of the, the price of a cigarette than they did before the 1930s, and indeed than they did um, after the end of the federal tobacco program in 2004. And then something happens in the 1950s. It's called science. <laughs> it's called health. Mm -hmm. um, leading up to the 1964 Surgeon General's uh, report. So these farmers get caught completely off guard. Uh, so because because uh, federal policy has encouraged the organization of some elite tobacco farmers, uh, the industry sees an opening to make an alliance with tobacco farmers during, well, the 1950s through, arguably, the present day. And so at that cinematic meeting in the New York Plaza Hotel in 1953, it's not just the tobacco uh, corporate executives. It's not just the executives of, you know, Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds that are there. There are representatives of tobacco uh, agricultural groups there as well. And as part of the organizations spawned by Big Tobacco's conspiracy to doubt monger... The, the Big Tobacco being the corporation. Yes. So the, the farmers are... They, they organize a, an agricultural offshoot of the of the big tobacco conspiracy. They organized a group called the Tobacco Growers Information Committee um, in the, the early 1950s that's intended to basically uh, translate uh, uh, industry propaganda for an agricultural audience with the idea that farmers who are this constituency beloved by politicians, important to politicians because they're more numerous, of course, than... Uh, than 
people who work for uh, big corporations, uh, that farmers may be, in fact, a very um, down-home uh, ally uh, for the big tobacco companies as they you know, try to make arguments against uh, regulation on the basis of health. So by the 1950s, 1960s, you have, what, two, three different regimes, certainly from mm. government. You have now government, Department of Agriculture, um, Congressional Appropriations Committee, the Agricultural Committee, supporting the industry, right, yes. wanting to help the farmer. Yeah, and organizing farmers to go testify uh, in Congress against uh, people in public health. So the, I mean, part of it is or using farmers who are organized to basically uh, be uh, the mouthpiece of industry because they're more mm, credible or more um, likable, uh, yeah, down home than uh, a, a suit from Philip Morris. So you see farmers going to testify against uh, proposed cigarette regulations in the 1960s, for example. And who was using them? What do you mean? Was it the industry? Was this the the corporate Philip Morris's of the world yes. uh, putting the farmers up to them? Yeah. Were they were happy to have these farmers out there? They was were, it the, the industry was very happy to have this alliance, but farmers too were not just pawns in this game. Farmers too were um, they believed that regulation on health grounds would be bad for them. You know, they had seen that. Uh, their prosperity had been linked to, obviously, the rise of the cigarette in a really direct way. Um, also, it's many people might not realize that prior to really World War II, prior to the nineteen, uh, the the late nineteen thirties, the main way that people consumed tobacco was not even in a cigarette. So the rise of the cigarette directly tracks the you know, rise of prosperity for farmers, though the prosperity for farmers was due to demand, but it was also due to government interventions. So they they were invested in people continuing to smoke. Any disconnect in their heads? Did they want their kids to smoke? Hmm. I don't... Um, tobacco farmers smoked more than other people, and to this day you see greater rates of tobacco use in tobacco-growing regions. So I think, you know... Probably by the 80s, they didn't want their kids to smoke. And so 64, you had the Surgeon General. You also chronicle the book shifts a little, mm -hmm. right? You have the rise of the public interest right. movement. Yes. So the Surgeon General's report comes out in 1964, and it's basically the first time the federal government says, you know, smoking causes cancer and heart disease. And for many Americans, this is a, a, a huge event. It's splashed across uh, the front pages on newspapers across the country. Um, but, you know, it had been in the works for a couple of years. In 1962, uh, the Royal College of Physicians, basically the UK's equivalent to the Surgeon General, comes out with this report. Uh, with, with their report saying much the same thing. And so the question for Congress and for regulators, too, becomes, all right, what are we going to do with this information? Because the report basically said um, that you know, government needed to, to do something to, with, with haste on the issue. And so the FTC says, all right, we're going to use this, the Federal Trade Commission, as an opportunity uh, to kind of enhance the power of our agency to uh, uh, regulate on this most important of enhance health. Enhance the power of our agency? I know. Well, to, I mean, it's an opportunity for them to approach regulation in a new way, to approach regulation in a more muscular kind of way than they had before. This wasn't about public health for them? Oh, of course it was ultimately about public health, but basically the Surgeon General's report gave them uh, cover and an impetus to do something that, that regulators on that committee had said they had wanted to do before. So it was, it was absolutely about public health for the FTC, but this was an opportunity to say we're crafting these regulations, uh, which were proposed to be warning labels, in response uh, to this report in the name of public health. And as you chronicle 
the Hill didn't like that. The Hill did not like that. So it turns out that Southern uh, Democrats continued to be very powerful um, in uh, mid-1960s uh, Washington. And so in response to kind of more strongly worded warning labels proposed by the FTC, uh, Congress steps in and they uh, do what, um, you know, becomes uh, you know, characteristic of uh, Congress acting at the behest of the tobacco industry, and they offer up a watered-down warning label, um, and they also basically say, hey, FTC, you can't regulate on this for a few more years. So. Confronting for big tobacco? Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, they have, uh, it's, yes. Big tobacco pulling the strings? Yes. My sense is the book takes goes to a whole different level about this time because you start telling the story of the Donna Chimp, mm. right, from Salem, New Jersey. Yes. So part of what's at play with the warning label issue is the paradigm of consent, right? If we put a warning label on a pack of cigarettes, it is the smoker's choice to do what he or she will with that information. Now, by the late 1960s, early 1970s, a number of Americans are uh, begin to think that you know this consent paradigm makes no sense, and, and not for the reasons that become nonsensical later, the addiction issue, but the paradigm of consent makes no sense because most Americans, and this is true of even at America's smokiest, never experienced smoking as smokers. They experienced it as non-smokers. And so what becomes a critical uh, in the 1970s is the invention of the idea, the creation of the idea of non-smokers' rights. You go back to the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Was it Charles, Dr. Charles Peace, uh, mm -hmm. uh, New York uh, subways. Mm -hmm. I think there was an op-ed in the New York Times um, that uh, opposed any restrictions on uh, smoking uh, back at the turn of the you know prior century. Uh, they were people were comfortable. The Times said, "Let people smoke uh, in subway uh, cars." So the, the non-smokers' rights. Well, what was different in the 1970s than the early 1900s? Yeah, so the idea of a, a, a movement for smoking restriction had an antecedent in the early 20th century. So it might surprise a lot of people to know that you know, a handful of states actually banned the sale of cigarettes in the early 20th century. It was a part of, uh, it was basically a kind of cigarette version of prohibition. But if you, you didn't have this, the modern cigarette, no. people rolled their own cigarettes, and somewhat at the, you had the inverse, right? I mean, in the early 1900s, of course, smokers were fighting for their rights to smoke because most people didn't smoke at the turn of the previous century. Right. Most people did not smoke at the turn of the previous century. And here's the, the link to the, the temperance movement, the prohibition movement. The people that did smoke at the turn of the 20th century tended to be immigrants. They tended to live in cities. They tended to be young men. They tended to be portrayed as juvenile delinquents. So smoking in the, at the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s was considered something almost un-American. It was a vice of the foreign-born. And so the anti-smoking movement of the, the first two decades of the 20th century kind of rode uh, that a wave of, of nativism and thinking about, you know, what type of behavior is appropriate for, you know, native-born, healthy Americans. Uh, go back 1970 to Donna Shemp. Tell me about her. Tell me about her case. So Donna Shemp was this fascinating woman. So she was a... Um, customer service representative working for New Jersey Bell, and uh, she had a terrible tobacco allergy. And where she worked um, in New Jersey, more than half of her coworkers smoked, which was actually a more smoking environment 
than most people's offices, because at this time, only about 40% of the American population smoked. So she was exposed to smoke on a daily basis, and she had complained to her supervisors and had not gotten very far, and it really affected her quality of life. Every day, you know, she would pop an anti-emetic pill because she would throw up um, uh, sometimes, and she began to wear a gas mask to work which to me just... Had the telephone call. Yes, she, was, she had to lower it, but she did not remove it completely when she spoke with people on the phone or when she spoke with people uh, who came in uh, to the office. This was the little bells before we had Verizon. Exactly, yes. This is AT&T, yes. So um, she, you know, went to her... She was a member of the Communication Workers of America, and she went to her union steward, and she said, you know, this is a, a workplace health issue. Can you help me? Throughout the meeting, uh, he is smoking, which must have given her an indication of um, how, how she would not get very far in, in talking to him. She went to the company doctor. This is a big company. So she went to the company doctor, and the company doctor said, this is ridiculous. Like, you're ill. Your workplace is making you ill. You need to stay home until the company works out an arrangement um, so that you can, you know, return to work in a safe and healthy environment. And so she says, okay, I'll, she tells her supervisors, and she thinks she'll just be home a couple days until they uh, rejigger the office to accommodate her. Days turn into months, which in her mind, there must have been alarm bells going off. What the heck is going on? Are they planning to fire me? Am I going to lose my job? Why are they so devoted to this smoking office? And so while she's at home, uh, she, I mean, she's basically on a sabbatical. And as an academic, I understand that by being on sabbatical, she actually gets some work done. Um, and she basically immerses herself in the burgeoning world of anti-tobacco activism. So she makes contact with a group called ASH, Action on Smoking and Health, which was the legal arm of the anti-tobacco movement. She contacts um, a local social movement called GASP, Group Against Smoking Pollution. And from these sources, she basically learns that she's in uncharted territory, that there are no state, to say nothing of federal laws, that govern uh, the presence or absence or regulation of smoking at work. And so she basically realizes that uh, the only way that this will get resolved is to pursue legal action. And so she decides she's going to sue her employer. And that's also a really daunting thing to consider. She's in totally uncharted territory here. The duty to have a mm -hmm. safe workplace, where did that legal theory come from? I think that's a... a a very well-established common law um, idea about the responsibility of an employer to an employee. What was novel was that smoking constituted an unsafe work environment for Donna Shemp. Legal innovation? Yes. Judicial activism? Uh, I, I, legal innovation married to a judge's understanding of of science and the, the need of the worker. So Donna Shemp's case takes on this tremendous kind of so almost in the world of public health celebrity dimension. So, you know, she's it's 1975. She's going to sue her employer. She doesn't really know where to turn. And back before the days of Wikipedia, she did what uh, any kind of motivated, informed citizen would do. She calls up a reference librarian at Rutgers to ask, who should I talk to if I want to talk to somebody about this? What, what, is there anybody working at the law school? And this is what historians call contingency, the idea that if this one little thing could have been different, maybe history as a whole would have been different. And so it just so happened, so this is the contingent event, that a, a law professor by the name of Alfred Bloomrosen was on faculty. He was teaching at Rutgers Law. And Bloom Rosen had spent the previous decade uh, serving uh, in the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which was the federal agency created to enforce 
the Civil Rights Act at work. And so Bloom Rosen had thought a lot about the responsibility of employers to not discriminate on you know, various axes. And he was teaching a class in employment law, and he was eager to take up her case pro bono and use it to, as a, a teaching tool for his students. And to, to me, that's just amazing, because Bloom Rosen was the kind of um, figure that you know, thought a lot about the relationship between agencies and lawyers, sometimes agencies, in fact, want to be sued so that they can, uh, you know, fulfill their mandate. He was the legal architect. Um, for the Shimp, for the Shimp case, he was crucial in preparing uh, uh, the initial, the initial documents. Yes. I, I have a sense you were um, captured. You were you were enormously interested in. in in her, uh... So she did so much work on her own. I mean, I just think about what it would have taken to be her in this work environment that's, you know, it's a hostile work environment. She is throwing up from smoke and people are smoking in her face, right? Like, it, her employer doesn't want her there. While she's at home, you know, making these phone calls, she also drafts, you know, a very extensive uh, uh suggestion for a corporate policy that she delivers to the headquarters of AT&T about how they could uh, reasonably accommodate non-smoking employees. And um, a line that ends up being very consequential in her case was that, you know, if you can have a non-smoking section for the operators at the switchboard, you clearly have the power to tell employees not to smoke in certain areas. So She died early this, this year. year. Mm -hmm. Did you interview her? No, I wanted to talk to her, and I reached out, um, uh, but I did not hear back. She was, you know, pretty aged. There, she left her papers at the University of California. Were they helpful? Tremendously. Um, uh, yes, and so I, I, I'm, I gla I'm glad that you noticed that I, I seemed captivated by her because I really was. So in the course of this. Uh, document that she's written to AT&T, she also pioneers what becomes an important argument uh, for, through the rest of the 70s and in the 80s, where she says, you know, smokers are expensive employees. They take breaks. They, uh, they destroy equipment. Um, they are sick more often. And she basically presents a business case for restricting, and then later it becomes taken up as banning tobacco at work. And although this was not the point that the, the judge who ruled in her favor picked up upon, it becomes an important argument that she makes later on um, as she continues anti-tobacco advocacy. She won her case, mm -hmm. but there was limited precedent. Other jurisdictions didn't did uh, not side with non-smoking employees, no. Did, it, did that make a difference? Was it really about uh, the, the law, the case? What really, um, what was the difference here? Yeah, so th that's such a good question. So there are some other cases that spring up in the late 70s and early 80s where employees are basically uh, making similar types of claims. And they don't succeed. What I think made the difference, or what made the difference overall to the anti-tobacco movement as it proceeded uh, through the next decades was this business case. So Donna Shemp, and here's another reason I was so captivated by her, she continued to work at Bell while also, uh, post this case, while also basically starting her own business, her own consultancy that she ran out of her basement. And her consultancy basically made the case to businesses that it would be good for your bottom line to protect non-smokers at work. And her argument was basically twofold. One, smokers were expensive employees. And two, hey, look at my case, you're creating potential liabilities. Now, that part was a little fudgy because, you know, her case was rather unique. But the idea that, you know, this is a... a an inexpensive way to potentially save money for employers ends up being very attractive to businesses that take up 
uh, smoking restrictions through the 1980s, you know, with increasing speed in the 1980s. My sense is you circle, um, the, the book is, you know, about rights, mm. rights of the smoker, rights of the non-smoker, uh, the right to, uh, the right to make a living. Mm -hmm. um, so these are political rights, these are legal rights, they're, how do you think about it? I think about the, I think about rights talk as being increasingly salient for non-smokers in the post-1960s era. It's a way of communicating their claims that really had not existed prior to the 1960s. Um, and I think that for non-smokers, this rights talk is really coming from three sources. One is the influence, of course, of the civil rights movement. And non-smokers rights groups like GASP, Group Against Smokers Pollution, they're these decentralized um, advocacy groups all over the country. In their literature and in speeches made by organizers, they sometimes uh, stretch the analogy between claiming non-smokers' rights and participating in the African-American freedom movement. I, they stretch this a bit far, but they say things along the lines of, is there really any difference between asking for um, the right to sit at a lunch counter and the right to sit at a lunch counter and enjoy one's lunch? Is there any difference between what we're asking for and what African-Americans uh, were demanding um, in the 1950s and 1960s. So there's kind of one, the, the, they borrow the moral heft of uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, the second um, kind of stream of thought that I, I think is really shaping the rights talk of non-smokers is like the feminist movement, specifically the idea of consciousness raising. So for non-smoker advocates, one thing they have to do is make it safe to say, I'm a non-smoker and I think that how I want to be in this space should determine what the space is like. They have to basically make people realize that they share, make non-smokers realize that they share a common experience together, a common experience of being oppressed, if you will, by the presence of tobacco smoke. And so there's some borrowing of the idea of feminist consciousness raising that by sharing a private indignity with you know, other women that you can basically make that into a, a public claim. Um, and the final strand of thought that's informing the rights talk is the environmental movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s as non-smokers rights activists you know, framed indoor smoking as an environmental hazard. Does the book have a hypothesis? Did you start with an hypothesis? Did you start with a thesis? No. I, to return to our earlier conversation, I just started with a question, which was, what happened to the antagonism between tobacco farmers and the tobacco industry as both became threatened uh, by uh, knowledge that smoking caused cancer? So I, I, had, I started with a question, not with an answer. I, um, I've heard you say the following. Um, what ultimately reduced tobacco's grip on American society was not the discovery that smoking causes cancer, and of course the Surgeon General's warning to that effect. It was the invention by activists of non-smokers' rights. The idea that people who do not smoke were entitled and able to achieve unpolluted air in shared public spaces. I stand by it. Can I push back a little? Yes. I see the history of tobacco as one of chapters. Mm -hmm. um, when I came to Washington in 1990, um, uh, there was a, a lot of progress on secondhand smoke. We finally were able to get on um, planes um, and not breathe uh, polluted air. But there was, quote, in a, the industry used this word, I always sort of shuddered, accommodation that was made, yep. right? That's what they wanted mm -hmm. to talk about, accommodation. But the issue had somewhat plateaued. Mm -hmm. 
right? And the progress of the, the uh, anti-tobacco community, they were sort of, you know, they were a little bit at a loss. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we yeah. started looking at a different question of whether nicotine was a drug, we, right. we focused on was the industry manipulating nicotine levels to keep people smoking. Right. Then we focused on, uh, on kids. Right. Um, so I see these as chapters. You see this as the key determinant. I agree that there's chapters. I think what my book suggests is that an important chapter that we've overlooked was the rise of a true social movement around the idea of non-smokers. And that that chapter perhaps enabled the yeah. subsequent chapters. A a absolutely. Um, I mean, th that rings very true to me. So what's the implications? If, if you're hmm. right, right, that um, my rights as a non-smoker mm -hmm. um, to, to non-polluted air, that doesn't portend well on the vaping uh, issue because at least for now, the, the vaping industry says, well, there isn't secondhand consequences, we'll see. Um, but that's not then the same kind of tool that's available, right? Yeah, the vaping issue is different than the tobacco issue, though uh, to return to your the, the idea of tobacco unfolding in chapters, you know, we're at a chapter where we can look back over the whole of the past 100 years and ask, well, what do we know? And I think one thing that we know is that we should not take the tobacco industry um, at its word, and we should not uh, assume that just because we don't have a proof of, uh, you know, the harmful consequences, deep proof of you know the epidemiological consequences of vaping right now or secondhand vaping right now, that there wouldn't be. But I think also that what this history suggests is that social movements, you know, can really make a difference. And if that social movement is around the idea of uh, secondhand smoke, or if that social movement is around the idea that Juul shouldn't market to kids, that that can be an impetus for action and. What my story also shows is that action doesn't have to be at the federal level to be meaningful. And so, you know, activists can uh, try to implement laws at the local level or at the state level. And those had tremendous success in the history of the cigarette at changing attitudes toward the presence of tobacco smoke in society at large. How'd the cover come about? The cover is the uh, property of Harvard University Press. Talk about, in the moment or two left, the um, tobacco as a model for taking on big, hard, challenging societal issues. Climate change? I do see lessons in this that, you know, maybe I'm just an optimist, but, you know, not that many people read about tobacco and feel optimistic. So what I think the, a key takeaway of this book is that the federal government for a lot of the 20th century has been organized around the interests of industry and producers. And you can see that with climate change, you can see that with tobacco, you might be able to see that with uh, guns as well. Uh, but laws aren't just made by the federal government. And so one lesson of anti-tobacco activists is the power of local laws to change the way people experience their day-to-day -day lives. So by achieving scores of victories at the local level uh, in the 80s and 90s, you know, anti-tobacco activists made more non-smokers and a bigger constituency for the kind of future they wanted to see. And I think that there's lesson in, in that for uh, climate change activists that might say be frustrated at federal inaction. Guns? There too, you know, one uh, one trademark of the anti-tobacco movement were these was kind of a visual vernacular. Thank you for not smoking. I've noticed in uh, more places that I've been to, you know, signs that say no guns on these premises, and I wonder if that visual vernacular, just raising awareness of the presence or absence of guns in a place, can make people more aware of their stance on an issue. I want to thank. Um Someone, Dr. Cynthia Gwen Yaudis, who's associate editor of the Journal of American History, mm -hmm. for helping me uh, 
prepare for today's interview. I have one last question. You love doing history? Absolutely. I'm, I have my dream job. I love researching, and most days I also love writing. And you did it very, very well. Oh, well, thank you so much. Congratulations. A major, major scholarly achievement. Thank you so much. Wonderful conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you.